This episode of Standard Orbit is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program for the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. Want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. My name is Nicholas Meyer, director of Star Trek 2 and 6, and you are listening to Standard Orbit on Trek FM. Risk is our business. It's like nothing we've dealt with before. My golly, Jim, I'm beginning to think I can cure a rainy day. I can't change the laws of physics. Now in standard orbit, sir. Welcome, everyone, to Standard Orbit, Trek FM's original series podcast dedicated to the original and new cast of Captain Kirk and the Enterprise. I'm your host, Zach Moore. And I'm Haley Stoddart. How are you today, Zach? Who do we have today? <laughs> I'm doing great, Haley. Thanks for asking. We have a very special guest. We're always welcome to have him back, talking some deep Star Trek knowledge, Mr. John Tenuto. What's up, John? Hi. Thanks for having me, guys. So, John, uh, you recently wrote an article for StarTrek.com about the home video release of Star Trek Four, And when I saw this, I flagged it. I'm like, oh, got to call John. Got to get him on the show to talk about this. <laughs> yet, yet another interesting niche topic of Star Trek that a lot, a lot of fans had no really, I, unless you were living at the time, you know, in the in the market, in the fandom, really have no memory or knowledge of. So, so happy to talk about that with you today, John. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's, a, it's an area of interest that... Uh, my wife Maria Jose and I have with uh, with doing the research is sort of how we how we engaged Star Trek, you know, and how uh, and how that's changed uh, because of the technology as fans. What does it mean to to do Star Trek at home? Did you have the Star Trek for VHS tape like first day it came out? Did you go out and buy it? I assume. <laughs> oh yeah, of course. Um, yeah, you know, it was a really different world back then. Uh, the, both both in terms of cost and. Um, and how we how we acquired films, and what really what even what films look like. So you know, part of the part of it was you couldn't you know certainly there was not, there was no you know streaming with science fiction at that time really, and um, you you really your only option for sort of on, an on demand experience where you chose what you were watching because of course you're, you're really your only other option prior to that was television. So like the radio, you were sort of stuck with whatever was on whenever it was on. The best we did before that was to audio tape uh, episodes or audio tape movies when they showed them on TV. And then you could listen to them again whenever you wanted, but you could, you obviously couldn't watch them again. Um, and so uh, that whole era of, of sort of running out, uh, you know, you could rent a film uh, and that was more popular initially renting films than owning films because renting films were very expensive when um, VHS 
premieres in the early uh, sort of well late 70s, but early 1980s really is when they when when it premieres. Um, it's it's eighty dollars to one hundred and twenty dollars a movie, just for a single two hour film, and uh, and a blank tape, a blank six hour tape was like twenty dollars. So it was an expensive proposition. So you chose your films carefully, and of course, since it was Star, since it was Star Trek, I ran out and got it and chose it carefully. <laughs> now, now I remember that I had this tape as well. Me and my family, we it was the purple box. It was very distinctive. It's one of the only purple VHS boxes I think. <laughs> We ever had. Uh, so Haley, I, you know you're you're more recent to the Star Trek films and things. When did you first purchase a Star Trek four? I didn't. Uh, a few years ago, they released uh, for the fiftieth. They did those DVD sets. My brother got me all the original series films in that white case. Um, I was five when this movie was released, and. My dad had kind of watched Star Trek, but I'm the Trekkie in the family, so, and that didn't really hit till I was later, so we never had one. Not that I remember owning a VHS for Star Trek anyway. We had plenty of them, but uh, yeah, no, I don't, I don't think we ever had any. So you probably, you, your brother probably got that complete Blu-ray set for probably like less than $50, Yeah, I assume. And this Although, and this tape when it came out was thirty dollars. But go ahead. Well, you know, I was reading the article and it's really interesting. I remember, you know, when DVDs came out and man, we thought they were expensive. And then when Blu-rays came out, we thought they were like really expensive. And I'm like, yeah, but VHS was really expensive when it came out. I mean, I remember my parents buying the first VHS player we had, and it was fairly expensive. So, I mean, I was born in '82, so they were still pretty pretty pricey at that point Mm -hmm. absolutely you you know john something you bring up in the article is how long people had to wait for this to come out it it took nearly a year i think it was uh i think 10 months approximately from when star trek 4 was in theaters to when you got it on home videotape and what a wait we had to use to do right oh sure i mean it was it was three years before we got return of the jedi on and that's of course a huge you know really huge release and that was 3 years and by the time you get to 1986 and 87 uh when star trek 4 is in theaters that that, that time has collapsed but it's still it was still a very long time it was uh, really 10 10 full months you know but in it, it it's always interesting to sort of look back over the longer the longer uh experience of it and to say well i that was a long wait, but it was nothing. It was nothing compared to what we suffered with in the seventies and before VHS, because we had we couldn't watch anything really, and and so you only had to watch it when it was on TV. Right in terms of like fans bringing Star Trek home and being able to watch an episode and eventually a film, um, you know that that's got a long sort of history back in in nineteen sixty well nineteen sixty seven the very first sort of do Star Trek at home thing comes out and it's a fi- it's 59 cents, right? So talk about cost, but it's a, it's a little chem toy. It was made by a, a company called chem toy and it's a little viewer and you can hold it up to a light source. There's no battery power or anything. You have to pull strips of film through it and it would tell a Star Trek story. So it's sort of like a, a poor version of uh uh, you know, a uh, home movie, you know, where you sort of pulled it through and the and the slide would go slide to slide to slide. And they, they actually, it wasn't even a live imagery. It was a planet of no return. They took the comic book, the uh, gold key comic book, and they turned it into a slideshow. 
And that was that was sort of the very first thing you could do where you could do Star Trek on demand and watch it, watch a Star Trek story uh, at home. And then about 10 years later in 1978, there's this quantum leap forward with something from Ideal Toys called Pocket Flicks, which is almost like an old Super 8 camera. It looks like it. And you hold it up to your eye, but it's electronic. You press a button and you could insert in cassettes. Now there's no sound, but you got one and a half minutes of actual footage. And uh, one of the great things about Star Trek on video and DVD and Blu-ray and everything, the Star Trek is always used really since, since the start, um, particularly by, obviously by Paramount, but it's you know, sometimes used by the industry itself to sort of test something in terms of the home entertainment world so that even begins back then so when you bought the ideal pocket flicks it came with the star trek cassette because they thought that that would be the the best seller this sort of pairing of a new technology with star trek and then you could you could go out and buy like a scooby-doo one and a and a happy days one and things like that but they they packaged it with star trek and you see that through the whole history of whether you're talking about ceds which are the precursors to DVDs or DVDs or VHS tapes. And it's always sort of Star Trek. Uh, that's w one of, if not the first to sort of bring, be brought out to introduce that new technology to the audience. Now, this is a little off topic, John, but you know, you mentioned a lot of formats there. What about Laserdisc? Cause I'm kind of a weird retro guy who likes collecting Laserdisc Cause I just think they're cool. Uh, because you know they, they look like records, you know, but they have nice artwork, and you can go to half price books and get ones, and eBay. And I remember there was a there was a store uh, in in Houston where I live. It was called Audio Video Plus, and they used to sell. It, it was like your go to place to sell. Uh, I'm sorry, to buy or rent VHS tapes, right? But they also had, and this is how I learned about these formats, basically, because my dad was like, "This here is a laserdisc, son." Because I was like, "Why are these? Why are these big giant CDs hanging from the ceiling? Are they selling here?" Like they had Betamax and they had laserdiscs. And so, where does the kind of laserdisc fit into the the Star Trek on video release uh, world? Well, the the sort of precursor to laserdisc, but very closely related to it, it's really the same, almost the same kind of technology is something called a capacitance electronic disc, which were CEDs and RCA. Um, were one of the first, they were the sort of pioneers with that. And, and and so RCA and Star Trek have a long relationship. The RCA is the inventor of color television and RCA owned NBC at the time Star Trek was on. So RCA, that's RCA, one of the reasons Star Trek got its, there, there's a lot of mythology that it's only the fans who brought Star Trek back for a third season. They, they were a big part of that, but there, there were other considerations. And one of those was, that it was, although an expensive show, the audience it was reaching was a was an educated and quality audience and a buying and purchasing audience that played a role. Uh, it was and one of NBC's only prestige shows. That no one was talking about any of their other shows, but this show was winning Emmys uh, from Leonard Nimoy's uh, performance. He you know either nominated or win Emmys uh, for, for for it's being nominated for Emmys, I should say, and it's getting all this attention. It's on magazine covers. But the other big reason is RCA owns NBC and they want to sell color televisions and star trek is the one of the most colorful tele television shows at the time in fact it is the co most colorful television show at the time and so this rca star trek relationship i always find to be really fascinating but so they released rca released um 11 star trek episodes in in on this literally record format um 
the difference is you just sort of like you inserted it in, the, the, how you sort of put it into your machine was different. And then they did release uh, the motion picture, The Wrath of Khan, and The Search for Spock on these CEDs. And they're big. And what's, and what's great about them is exactly what you said, the artwork. I mean, the artwork on them was amazing. Sometimes they were just movie posters, but other times, like the, the, the artwork for the Space Seed um, episode that's on CED is like beautiful. It's, a, it's, it's incredible artwork of the episode, and very unique. And then, of course, then you have Laserdisc, which is the close, very close cousin of it. And really what that is, is that for those who aren't familiar, it's, it's, it's DVD supersized. It's really the same exact thing as a DVD. The technology is a little bit different, but the picture was much sharper than VHS. Um, and it allowed for things like secondary audio tracks, so you could get commentary. It allowed for bonus features. All the things we think of with Blu-rays and DVDs really start with that with that world of, of laser discs. And of course, Star Trek was there as one of the first releases also. Yeah. Yeah. CEDs. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but weren't they basically like the inside of a sleeve at all times? You never actually see the disc. Is that correct? Or. Yeah. You kind of, you, you, it's almost like, um, kind of, it's almost like a, it, it, it's kind of hard to explain. But it's almost like the, it has a container, a wrapper on the outside, a plastic wrapper. Mm-hmm. And when you insert it in, you know, it, it gets read almost like a record. I mean, it, it's it, it, there's it, it literally like a needle that sort of reads the CED. And yeah, you it's not like a laser disc where you 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 physically touched the, the disc itself. You really never touched what was inside the CED. I mean, you could if you wanted to pop it open and mess with it, but but that would have been dangerous. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, my my laser disc kind of obsession started. I've already seen them. I was I was just fascinated by the technology from when I was younger. And then right after I graduated college, I I, I got a laser disc player on eBay. And I got, and then I got every episode of the original series on Laserdisc. Let's see, so that would be about forty Laserdiscs because there were two episodes a, a, a disc. And I got it for three hundred dollars, and I thought, hey, this is a great deal. And now it's like I could go buy the original series on Blu-ray now for like forty dollars a few years later. But you know, I, I enjoy having those big, cool like 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 uh, packages because I, I like physical media. So it's 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 not for everybody, but I enjoy it. So. No, and I mean that's what I mean. We love collecting the VHS tapes because the, bo- the box art. So we have all the original mm-hmm. seventy-nine episodes when they were released, episode by episode, and and even the store display we have. And it's and there you it's go. yeah, I mean, we have to store it somewhere, right? Um, <laughs> but the artwork is just great on there, and they're they're you know it, the streaming world is great because it's portable. Um, and the, of course, the danger of it is you're you are dependent. Uh, you're you're basically buying a license, is all you're buying. And with that license, that license, potentially there can be complications. You know, we, we see that in the world now of, um, you know, when people buy movies and they put a code in, you get a digital copy. Well, some of those people are all folding and it's all sort of becoming like movies anywhere, you know. And, and um, you know, so what happens to your license if a company goes out of business and how, who does it get transferred to? And the, the, does that new, can you know, do you have that app on your TV? Whereas if you have the physical media, as long as you have the player, you have it, you know, so there, there, there's always the balance between the convenience and the, the ease of the streaming. But then there's the, the, there are dangers you don't have with that. Plus, there's no box. There's no there's no collectability aspect to it, which I think is always a little bit of fun with with uh, having a home library of anything. Absolutely. Now, now, Haley, you didn't grow up having VHS tapes and all this physical media to collect. It sounds like for Star Trek. So, do you have you don't have the nostalgic attachment that like somebody like I does? 
due to this. So, so do you see any value to keeping these things around? Or are you like, yeah, I'd rather just have my one thing I can watch it all now, on? What now, do you think? hey, now, yes, it did not do uh, the Trek ones. It was not involved in the fandom at that point in my life. But like I said, we had a lot of VHS. I mean, until my parents sold their house. Let's see, I've been in my apartment three years. So three years ago when they sold their house and and decided to be the the people that winter in in one place and then summer in a different place they still had their vhs player and all their vhs tapes i mean these were like disney movies we're gonna go off topic disney movies from when like they first came out and i so i remember having to wait like a really long time for something to come out on vhs because we were pretty late to the dvd uh era when that started so I can understand and appreciate people who who value these things because like John was saying, the artwork on VHS, I mean, yes, some of the older DVDs, I have DVDs, gosh, from when I first started buying them, so that was a long time ago, um, but the artwork really was quite phenomenal, and um, I couldn't tell you all the different kinds of movies we had, but gosh, we had a lot of movies on VHS. And, and the artwork was really incredible. Before, before Disney put it back in the vault, right? That was the big thing back in the yes. Disney's going to put it back in the vault. <laughs> and, and that's the thing. Like, you know, these it's very nostalgic. I think it's really fun to to watch things on VHS. I, I think uh, generations now are, are missing out on the fun of it, much like uh, listening to a cassette tape um, or vinyl record. Everybody has their little thing that really draws them in. I don't know if either of you, to kind of throw this nostalgia in, saw the story. This gentleman bought a VHS player from someone on eBay and then sent them a letter saying I was able to watch tapes from, like, my graduation and all these family events that I haven't watched in years because he didn't have a VHS player because they're so – they are kind of hard to find. I did see that. He was, yeah. like, an older, an older guy, probably in his 70s, or – and he it's like, I got to watch my wedding on tape again. Yeah, that was yeah. a very uh, heartwarming post that, and, in a letter this guy wrote, yeah. Yeah, and so, I mean, I, there's definitely this factor of, of keeping things. I'm all for keeping physical media – um, I don't, I don't like to do, I, if I get a digital code, I might do it, but I would rather have the physical media, um, because, you know, if something loses their license, then you've lost your movie and that sucks. I will say, uh, if anybody is searching for a VHS, uh, player, please let me know because I live out in the Gamma Quadrant and I can go to, uh, some thrift stores and find you one. <laughs> There you go. Excellent. So forward, forward all uh, VCR requests to, to Haley there. Yes. Guys. So, um, so, so John, get, kind of getting back to, to Star Trek Four then. Uh, so it was released on VHS and Beta because Beta was still you know in the market back then. A VHS one based off the price point because Sony was Beta and JVC was VHS and VHS one. Even though Beta hung around and, and I was actually doing research for another podcast I was doing recently and apparently Mission Impossible the '96 movie was the last big movie released on Beta uh, in the United States. So it went all the way to '96, which is crazy to me. There's a couple of really good books out there if people are, are interested in um, that war, the war between um, Beta and uh, and VHS, and it's a pretty interesting corporate. <laughs> it's everything about corporations you, you would think about when you when you think about corporations, both innovation, intrigue, uh, you know, marketing, everything. And it's a very interesting story of 
why what what won and why it won and a lot of the reason why it won it was certainly beta had an advantage which was it was smaller um and usually people like a smaller media than a larger media it's easier to store and so on and, but really it, it lost because a lot of companies got angry at sony and decided that they were going to be willing to take some losses in order to drive them out of the market um and so um really interesting story but the the idea of us owning a home library in the vhs uh library or, or beta library because all the original star trek film are available on beta they then you know once you get to the next gen era it's a whole nother world but um so but you know they were very very expensive they were really initially meant only for rental and and paramount got the idea in around you know at the beginning of the era but around 1982 that they thought well maybe people might be interested in owning movies too not just renting them but owning them and so they used not surprisingly star trek uh with two different tests one was done in 82 uh with space seed so because uh star trek Two had opened up on June fourth, nineteen eighty-two, and it was it opened as the biggest film in all of history. Uh, no film opened with a bigger box, not even Empire Strikes Back, than Star Trek Two to that point. And so, of course, it was an enormous hit. And um, so they figured, well, if people people would want to see sort of the prequel, right, of of this, so they made a special release of Space Seed on on um, VHS and Beta, and it was it was designed to sell. And it was priced at twenty three ninety five. So that's again, I to put into context for, and I understand why some people complain about the streaming world, and you have to sort of pick a network in order to watch a show and then pay a fee. But if you think of five ninety nine a month for all Star Trek episodes compared to twenty three dollars and ninety five cents for one Star Trek episode, you could see the, and that's back in eighty two, right? So twenty three bucks is probably like forty bucks, you know, fifty bucks. So yeah, and, and you you were actually on you were actually on Standard Orbit uh, last year on episodes mm -hmm. two fourteen and two fifteen. You went to great detail. On the on the Rathacon VHS, so so yes, for, yeah. for people who want to get real deep into that, go back and listen to those episodes. Yeah, and so they, then they did the same thing with the movie in '83. They priced the movie at thirty nine ninety five. So th those that that whole um, experience and the incredible sales that they got. So Star Trek: The Wrath of Khan becomes the best selling VHS of all time. You know, and that really creates that home market. So Star Trek and 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 the home market, there's always that relationship. What, what to me, what's special about Star Trek Four, um, is that it. I really think it it did a great service in the education it gave people when it was re-released. So it was originally released Star Trek Four in September on September 30th, 1987, which is kind of neat because that's just within two days of the premiere of the Next Generation. So as a fan, I was in like my glory, right? Brand new Star Trek on TV, Star Trek fours. I can watch it anytime I want, you know, and um, and they cross pollinated. Of course, they sort of they advertised Next Gen on the original release of Star Trek four, and then when you watched Next Gen on TV, they they did a commercial. They did the commercials for Star yeah, Trek four. I, on, I remember on that. I've watched this VHS many times, obviously in my youth, and so I remember that Next Gen commercial and like there's just the narrator narrator of that. It was just it's a fun commercial. I'll go find it, but I think we probably talked about it. But it's on, on this podcast at some point where they're advertising basically that the Next Gen uh, series premiere, and uh, it's even the way they describe the characters is like Jordy, a man with unique vision i was like what <laughs> like those are the lines that always stuck with me about that commercial for encounter at far point yeah so. yeah it's great i mean they they really did a um 
you know, there's always been that, again, that connection between next gen and Star Trek four. Right. I mean, I, I'm, they're reading the tea leaves. They're seeing the dailies come in for Star Trek four and they're, and there's a kind of a very a strong confidence and that, that helps sort of propel uh, next gen into existence. And so, and the success of all the Star Trek films. So that, that there's always that relationship between the original and next gen that way. But when they re-release, they release, they re-release Star Trek four on VHS many times. Cause it was, I think the fifth highest grossing film of 1986, um, that's and impressive. It was also, yeah, and it's also it was also a great selling uh, VHS uh, and beta uh, film. So they could, they constantly re-released it so that the, the public would have it. But the best re-release I think is in March 1992, where um, it's part of Paramount's director series. And what they, that what you have is it's almost like a VHS tape beginning to model a what we would know as DVD and sort of borrowing from the world of laser discs. So it opens up. With um, you know a fairly significant uh, sort of fifteen twenty minute long um, making of with Leonard Nimoy and he sort of introduces the film and in that introduction he talks about the whales and the special effects and stuff but the, really what I think is was brilliant about that is that that release was done in widescreen which of course we all are I mean there isn't a movie today that isn't really released in that format. The pan and scan is uh, primarily reserved only for children's films. And even then you're hard pressed to find a pan and scan anymore. Yeah. I think the, I think the last, I think the last DVD I got that was, that was full screen was like, well, it had both, but it was Shrek. The original Shrek had a full screen mm-hmm. and a widescreen version. And of course, by this yeah. point, it's like, we all have, we all have proper 16 by nine televisions. So anyway, Right, and so you know, TV shows are done, and Star Trek Discovery looks like a movie in terms mm-hmm. of its, its its ratio. So, um, but but back then, the, the 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 general feeling of the public back then was like they didn't even know what the term pan and scan was, but that it was superior because when they when you would watch a film on TV and it had the black lines on top, television stations used to get calls from people that there's a problem that there's something wrong with my TV. Why am I getting black bars at the top and the bottom? They didn't, but we weren't educated in the sense that the TV screen and the movie screen were different ratios. And, and that by changing the ratio and pan and scanning, you are, you alter the vision of the cinematographer and the director and the intent of the film. And so uh, instead we thought pan and scan was better because it filled your whole square television set. And so in, in that opening, Leonard Nimoy does a really beautiful job and they do a great job with the scene of uh, Kirk and Spock and Jillian in the car and showing you how the pan and scan version of that really alters the humor of that scene that without you being able to see all three of them at the same time, because the TV screen pan and scan would only allow you to see one, maybe one and a half of the characters and you'd have to pan back and forth. It really changes the comedic timing and intention and the feeling you get. And by having that at the beginning of that film, I remember, and I've heard this from many people that they used that copy to educate other people of why you should buy widescreen films when they do start finally releasing uh, VHS co- uh, films in wider screen options. Well, well, nowadays, you know, you have the internet, so it's real easy to go seek out the version of a film that you're looking for, like the collector's edition or whatever. But, you know, back in the day, right, uh, like you go, to, you go to Target or Walmart or even Best Buy, and 90% of everything there is, is the, the, the tape, you know, and it's full screen. You know, and unless it said like widescreen on it, so I mean, Haley, what are your what are your thoughts on that? What are your memories of, of full screen versus widescreen? That learning curve there. 
I I remember when uh, widescreen started kind of getting a little more. I think first few DVDs I had, you could pick to watch it widescreen or you could watch it full screen. I was not a fan of the widescreen, not going to lie. But then again, I didn't necessarily have a TV that was made yeah, for you had, that. Yeah, you had the 4 by 3 TV then. So, yeah, yeah. You, it makes and, sense. And, uh, you know, I mean, God, my parents, until they sold their house, they still had their TV that had, like, the glass that you had to unscrew and clean. And then the screen was behind it and had the wood on the side. Uh, yeah, that thing was still running. So, um I'm, I've gotten used to the whole widescreen now, but every now and then I still kind of want my full screen. I don't know. I'm I'm kind of older, so it's it's nice to see that full screen every once in a while. <laughs> and here we are in 2019, and you have every your 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 smartphones are widescreen, like it's widescreen everywhere. Your, your laptops are widescreen. There's no square monitors are gone. It's always amusing to me when you go into like a place you can, you can tell how old it is, be it like a restaurant or a bar or just like like a like a lobby of some kind and you see they have the old CRT 4x3 TVs like ah haven't upgraded yet have you so anyway but that's great John and it's very Leonard Nimoy esque to take the take the time to educate us on the advances in technology isn't it yeah i mean it was you know to me it was uh um it was eye opening for myself i mean i i had i under i had understood the difference of it i'd been a you know even as a kid i was very uh, interested in film and 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 i you know i i would study Im- images from films so i would always wonder why if i was looking at a magazine i could see c3po in the scene but then when you see the vhs tape you can't see c3po when um you're you see obi-wan and luke you know uh, the talking about the vader and the lightsaber in, in obi-wan's hovel and you don't see c3po so i would always wonder like well why why this and that and you know and i didn't conceptualize necessarily why that was until i was a little bit older but um you know i as a as a as a film goer i always believe you know i don't i don't like to pause either so i i'm i'm resistant to pausing it's something that's interesting because my students are pa- pause like crazy anything they're doing um, and I don't believe in, I, I try to avoid pausing. So if I'm going to sit down and watch a film, unless I, you know, unless I really have to get up for whatever reason, um, I try not to pause it because that really blows the emotional impact of the film. I mean, you, you blow the timing when, because you're not meant to watch it that way. I, I Nicholas Meyer, who of course co-wrote Star Trek four has, I think the singularly best, uh, uh, definition of what it's like to watch movies on like a phone or something like that. And that's, he says, watching a movie like on a phone is like kissing a girl on the phone. You know, it's just, <laughs> it's, it, it's better than nothing, I guess, but it's just not. And it's also cheap in films. I think, I think watching it on phones and tablets, I mean, on the one hand, I love it because you're on an airplane and I don't have to suffer with the movie they show. I can watch whatever I want, but, um, on the other hand, it really cheapens movies. It makes them no different than television, no different than a YouTube video. Um, and it, it also astounds me because the sound quality is so incredibly poor. And so you're, you're missing so much of what, you know, Lucas, Luke, George Lucas believes 50% of the movie is sound. Uh, and that's certainly true with Star Wars, which has only 27 minutes of dialogue in the first Star Wars film. Right, the rest of the film is all sound. Wow. See, see, John, John is so full of these statistics. You know, like I would, I'm like next time I go watch Star Wars, I'm gonna go make a note <laughs> of like timing that. that. That's an incredible. But now, now that you mentioned it, so much of like the first third of that film is like the droids walking through the desert and all that. that that's interesting statistic. I'd never heard that before about Star Wars. 
Yeah, and you know it's funny if you if you look at something like Star Trek Three, you know when when Kirk falls back when he gets the information that his son is dead, you know part of the emotional impact of that is the sound of him hitting the chair and falling to the ground, and um, you don't hear that very clearly when you watch it on mobile devices unless you somehow have a really great you have your Beats audios or something like that hooked up to it, and and even then it's just so compressed, and it's not, it's not the ex, the experience, you know. So it's, you know, t- to me, I always like to try to watch a film as close as possible to the theater experience. Certainly, the best place to watch any film is the theater, and 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 then some films don't even so like Ready Player One. Why watch it? unless it's at a theater. I mean, to me, there's no, you can't even see, even if you have a 50 inch TV, you can't see everything there is to see in that film. Not that it's that great of a film, in my opinion, but it's, but it's certainly interesting. Well, it's like, um, like Avatar, had, right? It's like, okay, go see mm-hmm. it in 3D. But then once you have the amusement park ride experience of seeing Avatar in 3D in the theater, why would you watch it again at home? Right? So. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of a strange, I, you know, it's, and that's why you know, I and that's why I avoid. Uh, so I love watching 40x films, but only as a second or third go around. So if a like a Star Trek Beyond comes out and I watch it, I'll watch it in you know you watch it in a regular theater, and then I'll watch a 3D or a 40x or some kind of alternative version of it because I don't want to be distracted by the water blowing in my face or what. I want to have. I want to have the experience that the, the artists wanted me to have, the actors wanted me to have, in the format they wanted me to have it in. And I thought Star Trek Four really um, was a great film to do that kind of education with because it, it was a crossover film, right? It was a film that appealed. People who didn't like Star Trek liked that film. And you could show that film. That's a lot of times the introductory film, right? If you're, if you're the, the guy or the gal is introducing their boyfriend or girlfriend to Star Trek, sometimes you start with Star Trek four, right? You, you, you start with something that people can associate with and they can have a, they have a connection with it and it's just a nice story. And, you know, it, 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 there's no real violence in it. And it's, so it's this great, it's a family film. And I mean, it's a great film to educate people on why do you want to have uh, a a widescreen experience as opposed to a pan and scan experience? Although you know that you know it's this challenge when you watch older things or films that are filmed in in you know Star Trek Six and the what format are you getting it in? And even when you get it in widescreen, it's not exactly the format it was in the theaters and and, and or it was it is it was done differently. And the other thing is that pan and scan really kind of just, just in a way destroyed cinema for a while because films were being made for the VHS market instead of for the theater. So when before you had widescreen um, as a very common experience, when you look at that window of like the 80s and 90s, if you look at the films that are made back then, they're, they're made, they don't do a lot of wide shots. They don't, they're very much designed so that there is uh, really no need to pan and scan it and that's a limitation i mean that then it then it's really just a tv show it's not it's not a film and film has the ability to go back wide and come back in um and do personal moments and that's one of the benefits of film and, and watching it on a big screen well you know you mentioned you know, 40x and all that i'm not a big 3d guy myself Haley, where do you stand on 3d 2d all that all that stuff when it comes to going to the movies I've I've seen two films in 3D, and uh, I saw, let's see, I took my kiddo, we went and saw 
I think the second How to Train Your Dragon in 3D. And I remember we went and saw the animated Christmas Carol. Jim Carrey. With, uh, yeah, Robert Zemeckis. I actually like, okay, so I liked that one in 3D. What, what did you think of that one in 3D? That one was really fun. I actually, How to Train Your Dragon, the second one in 3D was actually really good. Um, oddly, my TV actually is a 3D TV, but uh, I don't own any 3D movies, so <laughs> I'm not, I don't know. I, well, but because you have to put something on, like glasses to watch it, it's like a barrier to entry. But I will say, you know, How to Train Your Dragon and stuff, right? A full CGI movie. I think those, you know, kind of. I mean, I don't want to call them. They're, they're animated, right? It's it's, but it's CGI animated yeah. movies, right? Those work well with these because you can kind of build the 3D in from the ground up. I find a lot of days they get like, hey, look, go watch the Avengers in 3D. I'm like, what is the advantage over watching it in 3D versus 2D? So, yeah, I I I would agree with you on that. That I think those animated films lend themselves to better quality of 3D than. I don't know, like Iron Man coming at you. <laughs> what, what do you think, John? Well, you know, it's funny that that, that uh, Haley mentioned um, How to Train a Dragon because I think the first one um, that this is one of the few times that I thought a film, which I think I, I haven't seen the newest of them, but I thought that the first two films were just brilliant and beautiful films. Uh, it just emotionally, besides visually beautiful, and emotionally beautiful. But um, the... And and a great and by the way a great kids movie because not to spoil the first one we haven't seen it yet it's been like ten years so I don't feel too bad but um you know it doesn't have a typical ending right I mean you got to carry the character loses a, loses something you know and that's pretty that's pretty astounding but when they the way they used this, the the three dimensional technology in that was to enhance the story not to make it a thrill ride so they used it in moments where like he suffers this loss. And they have flakes coming down there, like um, flakes of, of um, ash. And that enhanced that scene emotionally um, in a way that most of the time I've never seen three, three, it's usually 3D slapped onto a film, right? So it's, it's there as a, in fact, it's done reluctantly by some filmmakers don't even want to do that. Um, but they're forced to do it because the studio wants a 3D release. So um that's why you see some films that only parts of it are really actually only in 3D. So you're wearing the glasses the whole film, but you know, only a quarter of it is in three dimensions because it's only the scenes where they're coming at you that matters. And uh, but I think if they can use it as a tool to effectively uh, immerse you in the story, then it can be done. Uh, I think in a really you know ingenious way. But I always think you know the problem with it is you take something like Tron. Uh, Legacy, which is a beautiful, uh, visually beautiful film, uh, um, it's very dark in three dimensions. It's 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 almost unwatchable uh, in the theater in 3D. Um, you can't see most of the film, but then when you watch it regular, it is a beautiful, bright um, uh, uh, experience. So I think, you know, there's just there's some films where you can do that, and some films you can't. I always like to see a film, at, you know in its original format and then then it's fun to watch it 3d or whatever after the fact and 40x i'll tell you something like uh, the force awakens was brilliantly done in, in 40x where you're you really do feel i mean you better not eat before the film but you're you know you're with your seat moving and the they i mean they pumped smells in the the, the sprays of water on your face when bray is piloting the falcon uh, uh, over water that really worked well. That that was really beautifully done. And then some other ones you see, and it's sort of like, okay, your seat, seat rattles, and it's not, 
they didn't they didn't think through how to do this other than to kind of figure out a way to get to make it 40x but not make it meaningfully 40x now i have not gone to see a film in 40x i, I to me it just it, i admit, I, I will try it just to try it at some point but to me it seems really like theme park right ish you know i feel like you know it's like i got smell vision going on and, and and liquid and gas like but hey it just i don't know like in my mind growing up it's like okay those are for like theme parks and this is like the true cinema going experience i don't know i i have i don't even know if we have one here in houston i'm sure there's i'm sure there's a theater Haley, i but they probably don't have any out there in the gamma quadrant where you are do they so <laughs> No. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, I think the closest I could probably come to that is if I went up to Yellowstone to the IMAX theater that they have up there, which I did when I was younger, but I can't handle that. So um, I have a condition called vertigo and, and stuff like that. I can do roller coasters, but certain things just, it's too much for me. And then it just makes me want to puke. Yeah, you know the 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 yeah, forty X forty X will certainly do that. I like what I like about it is it's part of the heritage of films. So, there that whole Ballyhoo era, uh, which what they call it the Ballyhoo era, where TV, you know, the movies are finding trying to find a way to desperately compete with television, and you get uh, you know the smell of vision, the smell of vision, yeah, the guaranteed number of of laughs. You know, so you got a card, and if you didn't laugh, the number of guaranteed laughs, you got your money back. Guaranteed scares, um, three-dimensional, all those sort of tricks to bring people into the theater. Um, really, that is what we, we, this is the second generation of Ballyhoo because they have to find a way to compete with the modern home video technology, which in many ways is pretty close to the film-going experience. Um, in terms of size and, and and clarity and sound, I mean, you, you can certainly mimic a lot of what that experience is. And then the other dimension is, I mean, I never really like to disparage other people, but I don't think a lot of people know how to behave in a theater anymore. So we've lost that idea. We certainly lost the idea that a, the, the movie theater was a theater. So, you know, that and that by that's been gone for a long time. I mean, that's you know, we're, we're now I'm showing my age, but you know, you by, by the time you hit the 60s, that's gone. Uh, you don't have the concept of dressing up in a student tie and a hat to go see a movie, um, and you because you're going to go see it with 3,000 other people. I mean, that that era really goes away, but but even the I even when it becomes a more casual thing, um, because of the advent of drive ins and also just a more casual society. There was a certain amount of um, decorum. Plus, theaters used to do things like, and every theater was an usher who sat and watched the film with the audience. So that usher would walk up with a flashlight and go, get your feet down, stop shaking the chair, shut up. You know, and they flashed the light on you. And it was like, you know, being outed um, if you were a... Um, you know, like in a like in a store trying to shoplift, and they outed you with a spotlight or something like that, right? So that it was like this big out, you know, outing, and you you just you you got you stopped, you know, or you got thrown out. They don't they don't I mean they don't even have the usher near the theater anymore. It's when you walk in, and some theaters you don't even see anybody. You you get your ticket when you come in yourself. You walk in, you you know you go into the theater because you have an assigned seat right in the theater, and uh, at least by us, and so. Um, uh, that that whole the whole movie going experience is gone it, 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 as a as a um, communal thing and then you have people on their phones during the films and um, it's just a whole nother world and um, 
and people talk during films and they think like they're at home watching it on the couch and they want it to be paused and you know the on-demand sort of entitlement mentality has worked its way into the cinema and that's unfortunate because there really is nothing like seeing a film with an audience i mean when i when i saw you know star trek 2 um, I went on opening night and it was, and it was mistakenly opening night. I didn't know it was open night, opening night. I, I knew it was coming out, but I didn't know it was opening night. And when I saw it on opening night, my dad took me, um, it was, the, it was a transformative experience because of the film and the audience and their reaction to that and our sort of almost collective experience together. And everybody was quiet and they applauded when they were supposed to, and they laughed when they were supposed to. And, um, that experience is kind of gone. I, I don't see that too much anymore. The only thing that came close is in Last Jedi when they have the moment where they go silent and hold those, you know, hyperspaces through the other ship. You heard silence in the theater and you heard people go, ah, and that was an interesting moment. Um, but that happens very rarely, but that was very common. You, you films were funnier because they were with an audience films were more emotional because they were with an audience and, the, and you and the audience were having you were with a bunch of people you didn't know but having a similar experience and it reinforced the humanity of that moment because even though they were a different race or religion or sexuality or political point of view or age than you they were laughing at the same thing you were laughing at and it brought a sense of humanity to watching a film that doesn't exist when we watch it at home and i don't think exists in the modern theaters which are smaller shoe boxes um, really, that's all they are. They're shoe boxes with nice seats now. I mean, where I go, you pick a seat and it's a recliner. Um, but it's also got not even half the, the amount of seats as you had 10 years ago. And even that was small compared to when I saw Superman. Um, I saw Superman in a 3,000 seat theater with, you know, 1,500 people in a in a grand movie palace where everything was ornate and when you looked up it had a fake a sky as a ceiling so it was painted like and it had stars that twinkled and fake smoke that went across it that's a theater yeah i mean the, the, you, you describe that it sounds just like a, a, a symphony hall or something the way that i would go to these days but yeah that no nowhere near that in movie theaters these days absolutely no, there's no artistry. It's all it's all efficiency. It's all it's a McDonaldized kind of McDonaldized. Um, I like that. <laughs> yeah, it's an. Yeah, I mean that's what it is. It's a McDonaldized experience, and 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 uh, using a term from a guy named George Ritzer, but but it's it's a standardized experience, and there's really there is no. It's commerce. It's not art, and it's you know there's art on the screen perhaps, but the experience of it. I mean, in old time movie theaters, you were not allowed to bring. There was no food. You didn't bring food into a theater so you could hear someone chopping on potato chips and, and popcorn while you were watching the film. And you got the smell of their food. And the, and these theaters are kind of getting strange where they're, like, they're, trying to like, they're trying to save themselves, right? So they're doing things like putting pizzerias inside the movie theater. So, okay, I'm sitting in a theater and when someone gets up to go to the bathroom and open the door, I hear the pizzeria. And it just it, it blows the whole experience of what a film is about. But now film has become more about commerce i think at least from the, that side of things than than art and so it's really changed it's changed um the experience of seeing a film the location of seeing it and um then that's why many people may, might prefer watching videos at home today 
Well, kind of what we've all been talking about here is the immersion, either be the actual presentation immersion, immersion, or the emotional immersion. I mean, those are important. Like, you know, that 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 can really make or break a movie because if you see a movie with like the wrong crowd or even in the wrong mood or in the wrong environment, you know, it can kind of ruin the things where like if the projector doesn't work right or or any of these things can really like you can leave a movie like ah, I didn't really like that, and you can revisit it, you know, ten years later watching it in a different environment with different people and have a totally different opinion of it, I think. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I have a, a Star Trek-related example of that. So I, I've seen, I was lucky, just in terms of my age, I was able to see all the Star Trek films on opening day. That's always been a thing. I always went with my, my parents, or now I take my, you know, my wife and my, my son and I go, but and our son, I should say, it wasn't, she was, she was very involved. But anyway, um, we, uh, when I saw Star Trek VI, I went on. I had tickets to go opening night. I almost always for either Star Wars or Star Trek, I go opening night, and I go the next day, and probably the day after that, and I go back, back to back. And so I went to see Star Trek VI on opening night, and uh, remembered I had I had a bet with a friend. I thought for sure Kirk was going to die. I was buying, I bought into the trailers on that one, and I thought oh, they're going to kill Kirk. It's the last one, you know. And um, so we had a bet of who was going to, you know, pay for the film, you know, when we saw it. And so we went to see it on opening night. And I remember we, we saw it at the Biograph Theater, which is a famous theater in Chicago where a gangster by the name of Dillinger was killed as he came out of it. They caught ah. him because he went to see a movie, right? And Public enemies, so anyways, yes. Yeah, yeah. So it's a great, it was a great, and, and they still had the old, when you walked in, they still had the, the, the ticket booth where he bought the ticket on the outside. You didn't buy your tickets there anymore, but they still had it. So it's a great place to see a film, a lot of history. So you walked in there and um, we, we're watching the film. So that, you know, the first time you see Star Trek Six, that ending, editing sequence, the last sort of, the, the, from the moment they're, 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 they start interrogating Valeris and that just horrible sequence of mind, you know, invasion sequence, until the end when Kirk walks on the bridge and says, you know, save the galaxy. That whole scene is so, the first time you see it, I'm sure everybody's had experience, it's so tense and you're just like, and it seems like it takes forever and it's brilliantly edited and directed and, and, and produced and acted. And when they blow up, when they finally, when, when Kirk goes, you know, fire and they blow up the, the, the Klingon bird of prey, that whole audience had a cathartic release all in the same moment. It was in an, it was this big explosion of applause. I've only seen that. I actually forgot about that. This example the other day, I was talking about examples, but um, it was this cathartic explosion of uh, of a release. So then I see it the next night. I watched it, I watched it in the same theater, but not on opening night. The next day at the same time, and there was not that reaction. And that was because opening night usually drove, and still does, I think, really committed fans to it. But when you get to the second and third and fourth night, you're getting fans, of course, but you're also getting people who are just going to see a movie. Or, or in reverse, uh, when when Revenge of the Sith came out, I'm sorry, when Attack of the Clones came out, um, I was invited to a, a pre- see it early. Uh, our college had worked with a, a, a local the city group on something and they had they were given permission to show attack of the clones like two days early to a select group of people and they they called me and said would i be interested in going i said why are you even asking me just tell me what theater we're supposed to go to you know and we saw but you know who was there were like all like city people and all school people and 
not a lot of, I mean, some of them I'm sure were Star Wars fans, but it was like watching a funeral. Uh, it was very dead. The audience was quiet. But then when I saw it on opening night, a couple of days later, because I still had my tickets, um, it was it was an explosion of energy and applause. And oh yeah. So I, I remember I remember seeing that the first time when uh, when you know Yoda comes out and then like oh because people there were the rumors where he was going to fight with a lightsaber and you see him like you see a shadow he comes out he turns like everybody lost their minds like at the point like I, like that was like the most exciting thing i'd ever seen in a movie theater <laughs> now i'm a little older now and i'm like uh <laughs> they had to explain why he was called this great jedi master right why right. was he so great you know and um and then we saw it but i it, yeah it, it's how you watch a film i think even getting back to the original sort of vhs concept here how you i mean there, there's no there's no right way to get introduced to a film i know a lot of people got into Star Trek because of VHS, right? VHS allowed them, that was their window or Star Wars. They would, they would watch their, their first time watching Star Wars was on television or their first time seeing Wrath of Khan was on television. And that can be a really meaningful experience for a person because they're watching it maybe with their parents or someone who passed away after that, or, you know, on a different, you know, on a a home date or whatever it is. And it becomes a meaningful experience. So there's no sort of right way to, to, to watch a film. Um, but I, but it's kind of nice if I think if people if there's a certain order like I, you know there's a certain pecking order of I think as from a from a filmmaker's point of view I guess there's a pecking order of how you want someone to see a film so if, if you know if I want someone to experience my movie I'd probably want them to see it in a theater and then you know but but you do you are able to rediscover things um, because of VHS and of, and because of DVD and Blu-ray and and it can have sort of a second life. It doesn't have that limited life that it had only in the movie theater. So it extends your film uh, much, much more beyond just the theater experience and then the occasional, you know, movie of the week thing where they would reshow it on TV. Well, a, a couple last things about about Star Trek Four. This uh, this director's series that that Paramount have with their home releases. Like, how, how do you know how many movies were in that? Like, how they even selected them? They were, I, I think, like Beverly Hills Cop might have been another one of the, the titles in that series, if I'm not mistaken. Um, they just chose sort of their best, what they thought was was more likely to be their, um, you know, the best sellers. Because even at that time, it wasn't though VHS tapes had started to go down in price, but they were they were not um, they were not like they. I mean. When you get to like the 90s, early 90s, when when DVD is starting to creep in, of course the price of of uh, of um, movies goes down, right? But uh, even into the late 80s, the, these films were rather, I think they were rather, you know, they were rather expensive. They were certainly cheaper than if you were gonna um, uh, purchase them in a, in a uh, I mean, purchase them in the seventies or in the early eighties when they were a hundred dollars each, but they did films like paper moon, you know, which was a big, big hit for them. They took films, I think that worked well in the widescreen format and that they also thought would, would sell. And so I know paper moon was one of them from that, which was a 1973 um, movie. And then I, I think for some reason, Beverly Hills cop is sticking with me as a, as a possibility also. Well, these are movies that in theory people will be buying for the second time. Right, I mean that's that's why they wanted something that that had a lot of appeal because I mean most of the Star Trek fans would probably have four already, but it's like oh it's got a special introduction by Litter Nimoy and 
making making of. I mean, they got to have enough additional material to justify re-releasing it. I assume in this format. Yeah, and it was things like I mean, I know Fatal Attraction was one of the titles, and and so it it was it was a mixture of kind of like old and new, and I think it was sort of films that. As I think what you said is really true. Had a rewatchability factor to it as well. So I mean, Fatal Attraction um, was a film that people liked to watch again and again to show someone who had never seen it. Right? It was sort of fun to to surprise your buddy or have him watch it because it was such there were there were a lot of surprises within that within that uh, within that world. You know, so anything where they had they thought that there was rewatchability, and also I think they had to have a widescreen appeal to it. Um, because that was also, I think, part of the reason that they did that was to see wh- what were people's reaction to widescreen. Now, were these an SP or EP? Because they were able to fit the whole movie and the additional features on the tape. So I was just curious if you knew that or not. Yeah, yeah some of them. Yeah, some of them would have had to have been in in the EP format because they would have the films themselves run. Uh, you know, some of them skirted more than two hours to begin with. And that was always, that was usually the standard practice when you got any film, even even in the standard, even if they before they even offered the bonus features, well, if you had a film like Dr. Zhivago, they, or, or they would do, the, there were sort of two strategies. One would be EP it. Now, I really couldn't tell ever the, the difference in quality when you had a, when you had a, you could see a difference in quality when you taped at home in, you know, EPSP and SLP, right? Because it was either two, four or six hours. You, there, you, there was, and it's certainly there was a difference if you tried to copy that tape over. Uh, when you tried to copy a six hour tape over onto something, you saw a degradation in the quality. Yeah, it's like multiplicity. You make a copy of a copy. It's not quite as good as the original. <laughs> yeah, everything from sound and everything got worse. But they, they did it in one of two ways. Like with The Godfather and films like that, they would give you two VHS tapes. Mm-hmm. So they were still done in in the in the two hour format. Uh, but the, you'd buy you were getting two VHS tapes. Yeah, Braveheart, so, Titanic, right. all those big mega movies. It's ironic to me that they're like, here's a prestige format of widescreen. We're gonna give it to you in extended play. <laughs> so it's like, okay, sure. <laughs> Yeah, it's. I, I mean, I, I some of the ones that were EPs or whatever were were when, I, because it, they were done at the professional level. They weren't that bad, but it. You can. There was always a little bit of graininess. You know, you could see, you could see that. You know, but there was really no way um, to to do it otherwise, right? They couldn't. You were locked in, right? That's the problem with tape, right? Whereas the the, the DVDs, you they could do they were they could be clever and have two sided DVDs and things like that, you know. They, oh, the two sided DVDs. To, yeah, I think I yeah. think that's how. Uh, you know, you mentioned Superman the movie. I believe uh, I believe in the in the first DVD release, Superman the movie, like one side is widescreen and the other side is full screen, if I'm not mistaken. So. Yeah, and it's always confusing. You know, it's always confusing because they would often do it where it, the writing on what the film was was only on one side. And you couldn't figure out what which was which. I mean, the, the text was either really small and you couldn't you couldn't read it. So it was you would just sort of put it in, and hope you had the right side on when you were doing that kind of double side. Yeah, I mean, when I was younger, I was like, I was afraid, like, is this going to mess it up if I put it in upside down? <laughs> like, the laser going to destroy my disc? You know, you don't know when you're younger. So, anyway, um, last thing about Star Trek Four, because we've been talking about all, all kinds of things. It's a fun how how this opens up the conversation to so many other avenues. But uh, something that was really interesting to me is that they uh, there was a pr- promotional tie-in with TWA Airlines. 
for a, a deck of cards, not not just promoting Star Trek Four, but specifically promoting Star Trek Four's home video release, which I think it was very very unique and something you would never see today. Yeah, I love that. I have that set of cards. I've never opened them because I don't want because there's really no need to because you see the art on the outside anyway. Uh, they didn't they didn't sort of Star Trek eyes the playing card part of it it was the out you know it was the back of the card so when you were looking at it but that was brilliant right i mean that was you know the, the concept of retail advertising wasn't really all that necessary until more modern times and by retail advertising i mean going into to places like stores or or strange strange unusual locations to advertise because um they were pretty good at getting getting you with something like television or newspapers or something, because we had a limited number of places people went for information or entertainment. So you advertised films at, you know, the movie theater before, after, originally after, which is why they're called trailers. They used to come after the film, not before the film. And then they realized they have a captive audience before the film. So, and you may get up and walk out at the end. So. Wow. See, I never knew, I never knew that either. That makes perfect sense. A trailer is pulled behind something. You just blew my mind, John. I did not. Did, Haley, <laughs> Haley, did you know that? Did you know that trailers came after? That makes so much sense now. No, <laughs> but it does make sense. Yeah, because otherwise, it's not trailing. It's yeah, it's previewing or something. But um, so yeah, so they, so they, you know, they, they were. But now, you know, how do you, how do you let a person know? Which is one of the reasons I thought like Star Trek Beyond didn't didn't do as well as it deserved to do, which I thought Beyond was just a, a remarkable Star Trek film, but uh, and a remarkable film. I thought it was beautiful, but they they there was there was almost no advertising, and the advertising they did was very traditional advertising in the movie theater, and uh, now with you know TV commercials and you know have people go and visit Letterman or uh, Letterman or you know. Um, uh, uh, Conan O'Brien and things like that. Colbert, you know, do that kind of stuff. So Letterman, what? <laughs> let me get my <laughs> let me get my beeper out. Anyway, um, now you have to you, because there's so many. Everything is so niche, and people blow blow by commercials or they watch things on on demand where there are no commercials or uh, that kind of thing. That you that retail advertising has become really important. So getting things on boxes of cereal. Uh, putting them, putting it in grocery stores, getting getting the toys in a Target at the end cap, because everybody go. I mean, everybody kind of has to go to the grocery store unless they're doing something like you know a home delivery system. Um, everybody kind of has to go to the to a, a Target or a Walmart or something like that. So that's why those those end caps have become like prime real estate because you can put your Avengers toys there and that lets grandma, grandpa, junior, uh, you know, the kids, mom and dad know that there's an Avengers film coming out. And, and since everybody walks through there, it allows you to do that kind of advertising. And, um, but that, that you, you, you st with VHS, you begin to get the on-demand world, right? And that, and it's all fundamentally altered who we are and social media, and and on demand are the two most I think devastating technologies in the history of the world. More devastating, uh, other than uh, weapons of war, more devastating than television ever was. More devastating than the microwave was in terms of its impact on humanity. And I don't think we even begin to understand how devastating that is. It's fundamentally changing who we are as people and how we interact with each other in a way that is not better, for the most part. And so on demand. Um, 
that world of on-demand, which now bleeds over into how we treat one another. So every person needs to be on on, on demand, and everything needs to be as I see it. Um, and and the world has to operate according to my on-demand schedule, and that's scary. And that's very scary because you have a whole generation now being brought up with that, you know, where you can get what you want when you want it, uh, in the format you want it. And so uh, the the VHS world is the first step into that, right? So I could I could we used to call it tape delay. I don't know if anybody says that anymore, but you would tape delay or time shift. It was called a program, and that just meant you recorded a show and you watched it later. That is a fundamental difference in the way that human beings entertain themselves because all entertainment before that that wasn't derived from your own activity you were dependent on other people and their schedule whether you went to see a play a concert um, listen to the radio watch tv it was always on the schedule of someone else now you could time shift it and watch a show later right and then and also blow by commercials so that changed commercials so commercials needed to be where they put the logo on for longer because you were fast forwarding through the commercial. And so the logo had to be on there longer and they didn't tell stories. They did something to try to make you stop and watch it. Uh, what was that? Well, huh? What was that? And you would go back and you'd rewind your tape and you'd watch. And, but that also blocked advertising. So, so the traditional revenue streams or, or I'm sorry, the tradi traditional avenues of getting two people had changed even by 1986 and 87. So, this is a really great example of Star Trek doing retail advertising, um, of going into the marketplace and finding a way to get Star Trek, this message out about Star Trek IV being on a VHS, to people, who, particularly who would be in a, in a cross-sectional way. And what's more cross-sectional than airplanes, right? I mean, the whole world flies on them. John, John I, I got to give you credit there. You brought it back around. That was, that was an amazing... <laughs> Move oh, around you. of sociological commentary on how we consume as society back to the deck of cards. I love it. Well done, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's years of years of practice and <laughs> self-sacrifice and not dating. But uh, so, when I was younger, <laughs> but uh, but so that whole I mean, it really is, I think, what you, you now you see something like Star Trek 2009 was wildly successful. And part of that reason was they did mass amounts of retail. I mean, it, you every aisle you went to in the grocery store, you saw Star Trek 2009. Um, that was not true of Star Trek Into Darkness and definitely not true of Star Trek Beyond. And, and um, that could be part of the reason why it didn't do as well, because people didn't know it was even out. Because uh, if you're not plugged in, I mean, you know, if you're plugged into Star Trek, you're plugged into Star Trek. So you're going to the websites and you're and you're seeing that there's a new movie out. But if you're the average casual fan or you're a person who doesn't necessarily, you know, you like it or you might be interested in it. And, and hopefully the people who may be like, oh, what is this? I want to go see it for the first time. Um, they didn't even know it was out. And so that's a huge that is I mean, that's what that's why Solo did what it did. I mean, people attribute it to this campaign there's not enough there's not enough people that are anti-star wars to affect a star wars film like that i don't think i mean maybe it was 20 million or 30 million at the box office down but it was really down because people were confused that like oh there's another star wars film and the advertising was weak and disney has said that and solo really deserved i thought a much better fate than than it got in terms of its box office and um I, i'm glad to see it's getting summer they, they just won a whole bunch of music awards for for the soundtrack things like that and really i thought it deserved it it was really a great um 
really great and really different, uh, but but also familiar. I mean, I felt very much like I was watching. It's the it's the only film I've seen since the original Star Wars that feels like the original Star Wars. Um, and, you know, not that I don't love. I love all of them. I I love I love Episode One. I love all of them. But I but I but I but it was in terms of the feeling and emotion of it. It was very close to the sort of Western motif and vibe of the original Star Wars film. And um, I feel the same way. It, it breaks my heart about Star Trek Beyond. I mean, everything about that film, the costuming, the the design of Jayla, uh, the character of Jayla, um, the, the, just even the way the film dealt with little social issues now and then having Sulu, you know, giving Sulu a family, just little, little things, little, without making a big, you know, without making a big deal about it, they made a big deal about it. I mean, they made, they made a, they made a commentary about it. And I thought that that, that kind of stuff was really Star Trek and just, done really well and i love the message of the film that you know that that we have to change if we don't change we keep fighting the same battles and have the same prejudices and and i really like that and i thought wow this film deserved so much better than it got and 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 of course the, the its failure box office failure is leading to us waiting to see if we're even going to get a fourth one um, and, uh, and contractual problems and all that kind of stuff. And it's really bad because it's, and I mean, you could have taken that film and had William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy, uh, DeForest Kelly and James Doohan and Michelle Nichols, everyone, everyone in that film, George Takei and everyone in that movie. And it would, and I got to say Walter Kane and girl. I, feel there you go. I was uh, waiting. Yeah, I was like, he's going to leave them, him out. <laughs> yeah, I gotta, I gotta, if I'm, if I'm going to say one, I'm going to say them all. Um, it, they could have had them in that film and I would have believed every word that came out of their mouth. It was a Star Trek film and I, and, and it was really well done, but you know, marketing and, and all of that, all that plays a big role in how films do. And, um, and, uh, and that marketing with the, 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 the cards is part of the reason. I mean, Star Trek Four had a really great marketing campaign with the with the um, VHS tape, and that really helped the VHS tape sell well. And that included, you know, people were much more like their their neighborhood video store was their 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 line to videos. You know, before you had Best Buys on a mass scale across the country or Circuit Cities, if anybody remembers those. Circuit, or, Circuit um, City. Yeah, Circuit City. Yeah. State of the art. Yeah, I remember the theme song. You no, know, or Sunco's videos or anything like that. You had your mom and pop um, video store or your or a blockbuster or something like that. And no, that was your lifeline to the movies. And that's where you bought your films. Uh, that's where you... Um, you know, you went and rented your movies and you, you would, you would listen to the recommendations of people that you got to know the people who ran those stores. And so when you went into the store, to the video store to go rent a film, they, they would have these big displays for Star Trek four, which was really cool. And it, you, you knew it was coming out. And so that, and coupling that with the TWA and pairing it with the next generation, uh, TV show, all that marketing was really, really a great, um, a really a great sort of a, um, plan that they had and it worked so so what i'm hearing you say john is that paramount should have partnered with united airlines and got some star trek beyond <laughs> decks of cards and that would have saved the oh. <laughs> the movie at the box office right that would have that would have been another 20 million i guarantee it right well, there I, what what if they had done the the artwork with the motion picture style poster for beyond all those i would have, i would have bought those like i would, I would have paid extra money to get those cards so yeah, you know, and they, and they, I thought, you know, I mean, it was sad because it was like, gosh, that film, especially with the diversity of the characters, the, the the looks of the characters. I mean, that thing screaming for action figures. It's it's, um, 
you know, uh, the trading cards came out like two years later. We've, we didn't even get a novel for that film. And that to me is a great painful hole in my uh, in my bookshelf that there is no novelization of that film there's been a novelization of every other star trek film and and that, and then, and really of all the films that one sort of needs it because it there is an interesting backstory there and i want to know more about crawl that they weren't able to talk about in the film unless they were going to make it three hours and um and the, and the connection it had to the enterprise era and all that and i really would love to see it. it's not going to happen i don't think but um you know, or there was never a comic book adaption of it. I, it's it really got the short end of this. It was really forgotten and odd because it was its 50th anniversary. Well, what it did have is Funko Pops. I believe Haley, don't you have the Beyond Funko Pops? Is that, is that what's behind? If I'm not mistaken, that's what's behind you on that shelf there. <laughs> yeah, I I do. I don't have the crawl one, but uh, I was sent as a Christmas gift from someone. I have all of them. I even have Jayla, and then I do have the art, um, the book. The Art of the Kelvin Timeline book as well. Which is fantastic. And they have in there, um, and the makeup book, if, if people don't have that, the, they have a, the both of those give you hints about uh, original story ideas and what they were originally planning for it. And even what the original script was, that got radically altered and changed when they, you know, they had had uh, Orsi. Oh, the original. The okay. Okay. Yeah, you, you get you get some of the hints in there about what that what, what that might have been like, and um, and yeah, I mean it's it's uh, it's great. Yeah, I have all the Funko Pops too. I have the GameStop exclusive. They had a, they had a Chekhov and a um, Kirk and in the in the fantastic blue outfits. I just love those, and um, you know, and that's another example I think of, of a film where that scene where they open up when when Spock opens up the 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 sort of a, a satchel or, or box of Spocks and he's looking through his effects and he comes across the image from Star Trek V um, of the original crew. When you saw that in theaters with an audience there, you could, you felt it, you felt that vibe, you know. Um, when I watch it at home now, of course, I don't feel the vibe. All I have is the memory of that vibe, you know, and I just wonder how something like that plays at home to a person. Uh, maybe it's more intimate, so it might be better. You know, I don't know, but it's, uh, it's very much a question of how you see a film and where you see a film and who you see a film with plays a big role. Definitely agree. Um, I will say throwback to, uh, you know, you're talking about like the blockbusters and stuff. So I live in a town. They did not open this last summer, which made me really sad. I live in a town where I remember having a single screen movie theater. We still have a um, two screen movie theater downtown and we also, like I said, they didn't open, but we have two drive-ins. And so I would, we went to the drive-in more than we went to the movie theater. Um, our biggest movie theater was a four-screen one growing up. Wow. Did you, do, do, you have the, does, the, do you have the drive-ins now still? They're, they're still up. They just they didn't open last okay. summer. They were open the summer before, and they actually had a dual showing of, I think it was uh, Star Trek Beyond and um, Suicide Squad. And... Um, or maybe it wasn't Suicide Squad. No, it was Suicide Squad and uh, Star Trek Beyond. And, um, you know, when we went, they were the you'd put the little speaker in your window. And then eventually they did get their own like um, AM station. So it would just play through your speakers in your car instead. But um, gosh, I remember going to the Blockbuster. <laughs> And, it, and 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 the Blockbuster was a place too where they uh, eventually they unfortunately they made the 
which falls on that McDonaldization label also, um, they, they, they started to guarantee you that the film would be in. And, and what happened is then they moved out a lot of their older titles. But it was a great place to go because they did have a lot of variety initially, you know, of films. You can go back and catch an old film. And, you know, um, it, it's, it's, it is just very funny how the world has changed, you know, and the, the drive-in, that experience that, you know, very few people, I've never heard of a person, I'm sure there were, a person going to drive-in by themselves. You know, you always went with people. Uh, you, a whole families went together and, um, or you went on, a, or, or you went on a date and you, and you know, was it the greatest technology to see a film? Of course not. You know, you were, you were listening to either the radio in your car eventually, or the, the radio that they stuck on the side of your, your vehicle. But it was, it was also a communal it was a communal experience. And I think film is meant to be that. I think, uh, you know, art is always best when it's communal. Uh, you know, you can listen to a soundtrack at home, but gosh, it plays so much better when you watch it, you know, as with an orchestra, a live orchestra and an audience. And in fact, they did, we have a place near us called Ravinia, which is an outdoor um, symphony uh, um, experience. And so they sometimes have the, Seattle, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra up there. And so about three years ago, they played Star Trek, uh, the Star Trek 2009 with a live orchestra. So the live orchestra supplied the music and you watched the film. So you heard the film, but all the music was generated by the orchestra. And boy, what an experience that was. And Leonard Nimoy had just passed away um, within like f three months, four months of that. So every time he came on screen, the audience applauded. And it was just a really beautiful um, uh experience to do that and though you know to be outside to see a film like at a drive-in and all this bit that there i really i kind of i'm very sad for younger people today who don't have the fun of waiting in line for tickets who don't know yeah. what it's i mean in some ways it was a big it was a big giant hassle right but 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 that's, the how, idea that's how you got of, the term blockbuster exactly you went from one block to the next block to the next block absolutely and so it but it but you know, the idea of standing in line, especially for something like, you know, a Star Wars or a Star Trek film. I mean, I remember the lines for Star Trek uh, uh, Wrath of Khan um, on that opening night. They, they wrapped around the block and, and, and you got there three hours early to see the film. And it was it was you in line. You had this social experience with people. And and that's even true. Like I mean, I tell my students about like when I would register for classes when I was a student in college during the Jurassic era and rode my dinosaur to college. They um, they we we would register um, uh, at a register in person. So we would have to wake up at two or three in the morning and go stand in line for them to open up at nine o'clock because you wanted to get you needed to get the classes you needed in order to graduate. And you needed to, to but in line even though it was miserable and often you were outside and it was Chicago in winter and it was lousy you had a great time because you met people you didn't know, or you reacquainted yourself with people you had been in a class with, or you were, you, you were reunited with somebody that you were friends with and you, you talked and you laughed and you had this experience. Now we get a movie ticket. When I get my tickets for the next Star Trek film, it's going to be, you know, through Fandango, I'm going to do it on my computer in my house. Um, and I'm going to, there's no emotional memory connection with it. It is only just, I mean, that's what I mean about the on-demand and world it's removed humanity from nearly every experience that we have and replaced it with efficiency and so yeah i kind of like that i get to pick my own seat and i don't have to go wait in line for four hours that's nice at the same time it's lousy 
because all I'm doing is going, I just go to the movie and, and there's no reunion, right? So especially with something like a Star Wars and Star Trek film where they would always sell the ticket tickets like the week before you could start getting it like the week before and when they went on sale there was always a crowd of people you reunited with those people a week later so they were strangers but you had met them the week before and you got and so going to see the film beforehand you were chatting with them and i mean i remember star trek 2 walking out and the, the whole discussion that people had we all stayed like literally 100 people stayed after that film to talk about what we just saw with one another in little groups. I mean, it was like people wouldn't leave. They didn't want to leave. And they talk. Now you just go in, sit down, get your popcorn, get up, go, go home. And then you wait for it to come out on DVD. Don't complain about it on the internet, you know? Yeah. And say that, you know, how, how, how where did Leia get the force? Right. And, um, <laughs> it's, uh, I, I'm always reminded Ronald Reagan, not to bring call, but this is not political, but, but Ronald Reagan was, I remember reading a biography. He was talking to his daughter and he, and son, and he was talking about how, um, people always talk about the good old days and the good old days and the good old days. And he said, well, you know, in the good old days, there was a lot more, you know, there was a lot of racism in the good old days. There was, uh, there, you know, people were, were dying of diseases that they could be cured now without much trouble, you know? So you never want to, you know, it's fun to look back nostalgically at something and, and we tend to only remember the good side of it. I'm sure when I was sitting there in the freezing cold waiting to buy tickets, I, I wasn't enjoying myself necessarily. But but you don't miss it within that moment. But I don't know. I mean, what is someone going to miss today? Boy, I miss I miss you know Firefox as my browser when I bought my ticket. I mean, I don't know. There's nothing to miss. So oh, I, I think it is it, it it is different. You know, it is different. But you know, the past is what it was, and it becomes the present, right? And uh, and hope, but hopefully we'll. I hope we can bring some of that back. I do. I do kind of like what they're doing now, where they're doing these sort of fan party showings. I don't know if you guys are getting those by you, but uh, you know, it's a little more expensive. But you get to see the movie like an hour ahead of time. But you also get like a a bag of swag, and you like a glass you, set, a set of glasses, or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, and you get like like we get like like for Solo, they had it, and you got like a, and by the way, really nice uh, a set of the dice. And I mean, they weren't cheap. They were like really cool. Uh, are they hanging uh, like from your? Uh, like, are they hanging from your rearview mirror now, John? They're up. They're upstairs right now in my room. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and you know, or you get like a poster, or something. You get something special. But yeah. what was what's nice about those is because you see it an hour early, um, and because it's a fan showing and stuff like that, people tend to show up early, and they tend to do stuff like they'll have costumed people there or something. And so it becomes a lot more of a social. It really reminds me of what it was like to see you know, Star Trek six, an opening day at the, you know, at the, at the biograph and things like that, where it was a much more social experience. And, and the film was why we were all there, but there was also this other added layer to it. And so that, that maybe that'll make a comeback. I don't know. Well, John, it's always a pleasure talking to you about Star Trek. We, we go off in so many fun directions and tangents. I love it. So, so informative. And uh, and, I, and I, you you already have this deck of cards, but I I gotta tell you, like it, when I read this article, I went to eBay and immediately searched <laughs> for these. I did not find any, but if I find one, I'm gonna buy one for myself. And if I find two, Haley, I'm gonna get you one for Christmas. So <laughs> if I find one, I'll get you. If I find one, I'll pick you up one. For All right, thanks, Jeff. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Absolutely, it's always a pleasure. Where can people find you out there online if they want to hear from you? Uh, well, we're doing. Uh, uh, we're on Twitter, so we're just at Tenuto Family on Twitter. That's a great place to get us. And uh, if you're local, if you're in 
Northern Illinois or whatever. We got a bunch of talks this May. So if people just want to shoot, us, I'm sorry, this March, if people want to shoot us, we got one about superheroes, one about Star Wars, and one about Star Trek all next month uh, at local libraries and museums, and they're all free events. Three of my favorite and, things. Uh, I wish I lived there, but I don't. Yes. So yeah, we're doing yeah we're doing some great stuff. So I mean, you know, fun stuff, and hopefully people will like it. Um, but uh, thanks. I mean, it's always great to be able to give my opinion. And of course, I'm probably wrong about every opinion I said, but um, I can't be wrong with an opinion. That's the nice thing, right? It's, it's my opinion, but it's not. It's my opinion, but it's not necessarily fact. <laughs> <laughs> All righty. Well, talking about when Star Trek IV voyaged home and everything to do with consuming media and home video in the theater and otherwise isn't the only thing we've been talking about on Trek FM this week. Here's a quick look what else you might have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, The Ready Room. I just wonder, like, I, I think this is sort of a delicate focus area mm-hmm, for mm-hmm. a series, a Section mm-hmm. 31. I think it will be very easy to make an interesting TV show that strays too far away from what Star Trek is at its core unless it's handled carefully. And so I'm going to be interested to see what they do with it. And I'm kind of wait and see. That can be a dynamic tension. You could have two different characters Mm -hmm. or two different factions that represent that spectrum. Earl Grey. But yeah, it is kind of a very Kirk thing. Like, I'm going to you know, save the day this way. Yeah. Yeah. I love that as a great moment because the twist, you just don't see it at all. And here Riker comes and is like, Nope, I'm not. And then bam, bing, bing. And poo, poo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think the first time I saw it, I was like, Oh no, if Riker's infected, how are they going to get up? Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And just right to the very end. It was great timing mm-hmm. on that. Yeah. The orb. The way that you live your life is a routine and a pattern and almost an addiction because it becomes just what you do. And to break out of that takes immense work. And, and therefore, you, you usually, when you're going to make a change like that, you need some sort of safety net. And Brow hasn't been in a place where he feels that long enough, even though Kira is kind of offering that to him. The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. Pike's answer was a little, well, I owe you a simile. Like, oh, come on, dude. Uh, but but when he talks to Connolly, he's like, do you see how many syllables died? Like, that <laughs> was <know>. great. <laughs> that was so funny. Oh, my gosh. That was so amazing. I'm being a bit contradictory right here because I like Pike for the reasons I don't like Tilly, right? but. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcast. If you're an Apple user, get the show on iTunes or the Apple Podcasts app. Be sure to hit the subscribe button. That helps us out greatly and makes it easier for other listeners to find the show. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, Speaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course, you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website and grab the RSS link as well. If you would like to get in touch with us here at Trek FM, you can always find us on trek.fm slash contact and look in the sidebar on the show page. Or you can go to speakpipe.com slash trek.fm and please leave us a voice message. You can also contact us through Twitter at trek.fm, Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm, and the Babel Conference. Type the Babel Conference, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook or go to our website at trek.fm and click Discussion on the menu bar.
Another way you can help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week is to become a patron of the network on Patreon. If you visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm, you'll find our current goals and different milestone contribution levels along with all the great perks we have for you. These perks include early access to content, exclusive content, producer credits, seats on our content development team, and more. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. Speaking of Patreon, thank you as always to our associate producers for Standard Orbit. They are Norman C. Lau, Nick Anastasio, Tim Robertson, Richard Marquez, Corey Elrod, and Dan Rhodes. You guys, uh, your, your contributions, your help, your support mean the world to us, and we appreciate you being associate producers on Standard Orbit. So to find me on the interwebs, you can find me on the Babel Conference. I'm there all the time. Or you can find me on Twitter at BostonSCPO. As for me, you can find me on Twitter at MoronZach. That's M-O-O-R-E-O-N-Z-A-C-H. And I'm also the host of my own podcast, Always Holding on the Smallville, where we talk about each and every episode of that Young Superman show. You can find us on Twitter at AlwaysMallville with one S. You can find me on Twitter. I am at Trekkie01D. Celebrating Trek Tuesdays. That's tomorrow, everybody. Wear your Trek. Yes, and use the hashtag TrekTuesday. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and join us again next time here on Trek FM for another episode of Standard Orbit.